Hello, thanks for joining me for another episode of Creedle. I'll do the full intro in just a moment. I do want to say my guest today is an officer in the United States Air Force. That's how I know him. More on that in just a minute. Uh, but because of that, I want to read this disclaimer that the views he expresses on this podcast are his own and not necessarily those of the United States government or any constituent element thereof, including the United States Air Force. Um, we talk about some really great things on this podcast. This is the first of at least two episodes. We may do more, but the topic today is artificial intelligence. And I've written something about this. You may not know that I have a Substack. Uh, it has not been updated very frequently, but I am aiming to do so much more frequently now. So you can check it out, credo.substack.com. Everything on it right now is free, but I've written a piece called Synthesizing Ourselves to Death, the Banality of Generative AI, in which I offer some reflections on this new world of generative AI that is upon us and which we talk about in more depth today. So enjoy the conversation, and if you want to read more on it, read my piece. It's fairly long, but I think you'll I think you'll like it, and I would love to hear your feedback on it. So send me a note, zach at credopodcast.com, or just simply comment on the substack and let me know what you think about the rise of things like ChatGPT and what changes they portend for our future. All right, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Creedal. I am delighted for this conversation today. I've been doing a lot of reading and thinking about something that's been in the news a lot lately, artificial intelligence. And uh, one of my tutors on this subject has been a friend of mine named uh, Alex Fogacy. Alex is a classmate of mine from the Air Force Academy. Uh, so we we knew each other long, long ago. It just seems like ancient history now. Alex, it's crazy how much time has has elapsed since that. Uh, Alex, Alex, well, I, I went into the the realm of military intelligence. Uh, Alex decided to fly. So he's an F-16 pilot. So a much, much cooler day job than I've ever had. Uh, and then he was selected selected by the Air Force to go study for a PhD. So he is studying a PhD in... Um, Religion and Science, I think you said was the subject area, Alex, uh, at the University of Oxford. So now we are, we're, we're, we're twin alums of, uh, of two different institutions, which is kind of fun. Uh, so he's doing a PhD, I said PhD, it's really a DPhil, Doctor of Philosophy in Oxford. Um, and he'll be there for a bit longer while he wraps up his dissertation. And I thought he'd be a great person to talk to about this because he's helped me in a lot of my understanding and guided some of my reading on the topic of artificial intelligence. But he's also doing a dissertation that really engages with some of these questions on a on a very heady but very important level, asking questions about uh, consciousness and uh, what it takes to really achieve true understanding uh, beyond just simply a sort of computational understanding. We might we might call it. So we'll talk about some of those things today. And talk about some of the things that AI may portend for the future and all of that. And I'm just really pumped to get started. This is a fascinating conversation um, that I think is really only just beginning as it enters the really the public consciousness and more and more people talk about AI and chat GPT and what what AGI is and narrow AI. And we'll talk about all of that. Um, but without further ado, Alex, welcome to Creedle. Zach, thanks for having me on the show. I've um, become familiar with your podcast only indirectly through, I think, your Facebook uh, posts long ago. Uh, when it was just getting started so um i i don't know really any of your audience but um i'm glad to be on the show and uh as zach was saying we know each other from we mitered in arabic together at the academy that's right and we both found out we were both christian and just so we had a good bonding experience when we spent six weeks in egypt um as part of the minor and uh that's when we really got to rub shoulders and 
get to know each other. And then you went off to go do uh, fun things and be a uh, vice wing commander of the institution, a distinguished graduate, and then and then off to the races. Um, whereas I just, uh, you know, I got by, you could say. Um, and then, but but yeah, ten years later, you know, uh, you served your five, and then I still in, and uh, the way the Lord has directed our paths has been um, amazing in their own ways. It definitely has been. I mean, as you know, Alex, you and I just prayed together before we hit record here. And I was just reflecting on how richly God has blessed both of us. We both have uh, just families who love us and whom we love. And uh, just what a blessing to be surrounded by by uh, so many kids on a regular basis and just look around and, and think like, man, if I never if I never achieve um, the other things that I've always thought I wanted to achieve and this is what God's given me, then glory be to God for that. So and it's really That's fun right. too to... It's really fun to connect. Um, when we talked uh, a couple weeks ago, Alex, I was just just really overjoyed to find uh, someone who's had a similar journey that I have. In the sense that, um, one, we've we've realized the things that really truly matter more than power and prestige. And you were probably more uh, more level headed on that topic um, than I was in our college days. But I was a pretty ambitious youngster uh, and like thought I had it all figured out. And then I I you know come to find out very quickly that I don't that you know however however frequently i felt like a big fish in a small pond i was really just a very small fish in a very 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 big pond um and you know i get married and have kids and just whole perspective changes on everything but most importantly and part of this story the biggest part of the story is and i think we have a parallel here is just um we've had the great blessing of being being pulled deeper and deeper into god's grace and recognizing what a what an immense gift that is uh for us and just trying spending more of our time trying to help others uncover that grace as well. It's too common a story, and I shared this with you already a little bit, but it's too common a story, I think, to find and speak to friends who I'm reconnecting with after you know five, 10 years, only to learn that they've, um, to some degree, abandoned their faith, uh, yeah. you know, recognize that they don't have all the answers, so therefore none of the answers are true. Right. Um, or or just, just you know, come to sort of reject the, the formation of their youth in favor of something that's that's rather amorphous and vague and um and it's just disappointing to to find that so i'm really glad that you uh you know have a similar journey to my own in that respect as far as i can tell yeah and that is a i mean you 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 comment on that and it is a blessing um it's a tragedy to see a lot of people quote unquote deconstructing um and i i'm just i guess when in the in reflection reflecting on that um it makes me more grateful for the things that God has done in my life to sort of direct my path to not have that not happen. Right. So these people who, who are doing that and maybe apostatized completely, um, you know, they're culpable, but I, I'm not going to put myself above it either. Yeah. Right. Sure. Like, I mean, not that I'm in any direction going ahead in that direction anytime soon, but you know, the Lord has, has definitely, had his hand on both of our lives. Um, and so, and really what this is kind of saying is the importance of bringing your own children up the right way with a rich faith, the power of institutions to influence, like, you know, it all, it all matters as well as personal choice. And and so, um, you know, uh, yeah. And I, and I, um, and I am thankful and, Zach, I didn't know you were not only doing podcasts and, and converting to Catholicism, but you're working for the company that 
also has the chosen cast on it every now and then. So, That's right. yep. you know, it's just like now you're a superstar. Now that you, you always were kind of, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, this is really cool to see someone like like you be used in such a fruitful way, for sure. Well, I, I think you you hit the nail on the head, though. I mean, but for the grace of God, there go I. And um, yeah, when I when I step back and take stock of of my life, I really do sometimes just feel overwhelmed by God's blessings. Um, yeah, and I'm so I'm so grateful for it. Um, I uh, I also am delighted to know that you are pursuing an advanced degree in some of these really important topics, like I mentioned, religion and science. But you're doing it with a focus. Uh, not not exclusive focus, but in in part a focus on artificial intelligence and sort of how we can make sense of that and what it might mean for the future. So the genesis of this conversation, and by the way, by the way, this is a, I didn't mention this. This is an ecumenical conversation because Alex is Alex is not Catholic, um, but uh, but uh, you know it's 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 just the case that most of my guests on this show are Catholic, and it's it's fun okay. when we can I, I can have a conversation with someone who isn't. Um, but uh, the genesis of this conversation is from a couple of weeks ago when Alex and I reconnected. Uh, we had connected very briefly at our 10-year reunion in Colorado last fall when he told me he was at Oriole and, and studying some of these things and had mentioned that he's doing some work on AI. And so when over the past several months, I've just been thinking a lot about AI. ChatGPT came out in late November. People are talking about this. This is now the future of things. Everyone's hiring people who specialize in generative AI. Uh, this is going to overhaul entertainment and medicine and customer support and hospitality. I mean, every industry you can imagine is supposedly going to be totally overhauled by generative AI. And so I've just been doing a lot of thinking and, and reflecting on what this means. And I reached out to Alex and said, hey, I've got some questions for you. You want to just have a little conversation? So we did. We had a great call. I think it was over an hour, Alex. And uh, you shared with me a bunch of, bunch of thoughts. And I thought, hey, you want to just come on the podcast and we'll just kind of do this, do this again? Um, and maybe dive a little deeper in some of these things. So Alex said yes, because he's very gracious like that. And here we are. So um, Alex, maybe we'll just start there um, with a very basic question. And that is simply, what is artificial intelligence? Huh. Yeah, that's the, that's the question, isn't it? Um, but real quick, though, yeah, my thesis investigates human intelligence. And as part of that, I'm yeah. comparing it to the current themes in artificial intelligence and the philosophy of artificial intelligence. So um, artificial intelligence in its earliest forms in the 1950s by the really creators of the field like Marvin Minsky, they meant it in a way that uh, perhaps not the way we mean it today, um, but really it's a, a human type intelligence through artificial mechanisms. That's really what the original um, definition was or vision was um, so basically the original vision was having artificial means man-made intelligence and a, a man-made intelligence that's truly intelligent um, in a similar fashion that we are so today um, and I don't need to go through a history of AI but briefly it, it this vision failed and so even though it failed, they found that they could use some of the methods that they were employing to get some impressive results um, that didn't constitute real, what they not really even they considered real intelligence. Um, and that kind of has become what you and I think of when we, in modern terms, say the word AI. My phone has an AI on it. My, I'm going to play around with JetGBT, which is an AI. 
Um, so what it is is it's an advanced algorithmically algorithmic based computer system um, that can, in some ways, mimic certain portions of human intelligence. Um, and, and, and that's where the word artificial has kind of morphed from, you know, man-made to now something like intelligence is kind of what, what it's, um, at least in contemporary circles, what we think of when we say AI. That makes sense. Um, and so the, it sounds like the original, the original, uh, idea was what would we, what we would call artificial general intelligence, right? This artificial intelligence that can can generalize from abstraction can apply its learnings to other domains of knowledge. That is exactly uh, that is exactly right. The way you define generalization and the general as um, AGI, um, that qualifier is um, spot on. It has to be able to adapt on its own lights. It has to be able to adapt on its own lights into other domains. So uh, a AI that's been programmed to write prose, so if it were an AGI, would somehow on its own lights be able to figure out how to create images. That's kind of the idea. Yes. Um, even, now here's the key, even if the prose and the images are like the level of a, of a three-year-old, that still qualifies as AGI. Right. And there hasn't been a single instance of AGI. That's I think the key that, thing yeah, yeah. I think that point is worth just discussing a little bit because we do have this explosion of interest in chat GPT. You probably saw we're recording this on Wednesday, March 15th, just yesterday or the day before, I think it was yesterday. Yeah. Uh, OpenAI, the parent company of chat GPT announced GPT-4. Uh, which yep. is an iterative evolution, but it's really a pretty big advancement from the previous engine for ChatGPT, which was GPT 3.5. Um, yep. And so whereas G as GPT 3.5, for example, could pass the general bar exam uh, with a 10%, 10th percentile score, you know, scoring worse than 90% of test takers, uh, the new one, GPT 4, uh, was able to pass the bar exam with a test score in the 90th percentile, better than 90% of test takers. So this okay. is a this is a pretty big pretty big jump in its in its language and yeah. its processing capabilities, but yet, what you're saying is this is not this is still not artificial general intelligence. This is what we would call narrow intelligence because it is very very good at doing what it has been trained to do. Yes, but not only that, it, it's missing the key ingredient, which uh, the philosopher John Searle wrote in the 1980s. Uh, I forget the exact article um, title, but it was some journal article, and it's part of what it's it's part of like the canon of AGI, uh, or at least philosophy of AI is John Searle's essay, and he says that what the computer doesn't have, in order to be a general intelligence, is understanding. This Chat GPT four doesn't understand law. It doesn't even understand what it's doing. It, it doesn't have a capacity for understanding because it's not a subject that can uh, experience. And so um, it's impressive perhaps that it's able to pass with that level of precision, but it's still, and this is really important to understand, it's not like, oh, we just got a little bit closer to artificial general intelligence. 
as if like all intelligence is on the same spectrum. And we just kind of like, well, we're still really far away from AGI, but we're like one step closer. No, no, no. It's, it's like an X and Y graph. And we've gone further down the X scale, but we haven't even touched the Y scale. It's a categorical difference. I don't know if this analogy holds is, is the best is the best one to use, but it occurs to me that perhaps we might say chat GPT and this newest iteration GPT that's powered by GPT four that OpenAI just announced yesterday. It's like a really nice plant, like a, maybe like a really big tree or something. Yeah. Uh, but, but, uh, it's, it's a plant, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a plant. It does, it does a set thing and it doesn't have any sort of self-conception. It doesn't have any ability right. to, um, induce, uh, generalized observations about the world and then apply those to other, other segments. So it's a plant. It's a really, really yeah. nice plant. Um, but it is not, whereas, you know, artificial intelligence would be, uh, like an elephant or something. Uh, it can never be an elephant, and we're no longer we're we're no, we're no closer to making an elephant just because we made it a really really you know high, highly capable plant. No, and that that's a good analogy. Um, there's a lot of ones that can be used, but um, that's a great analogy. And 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 the reason I uh, you know I say these things is it's not like me just critiquing the AI. I mean, the companies that generate these generate these AI, they're not saying it's general intelligence. Right. You know, I mean, there might be a wacko that, that thinks an AI is conscious and then he kind of gets told what's what by his own company and gets fired. That happened a couple months ago. But I mean, Microsoft <laughs> Google, is yeah. insane. You know, Microsoft, Google, Tesla, or whatever Musk's version of it is, they're not saying that we, we create an AGI. They recognize that an AGI hasn't been created. Now, the less philosophically trained ones, like maybe the spokespersons for these companies, might, might, talk as if well agi is just the next step but but they right. won't even, but they won't say we've reached it the more philosophically rich spokespersons will admit that at least um they should admit that you know these are two different categories and it's it's important to not mix categories in fact yes a historical historical uh evidence of this is with a company called cycorp cyc uh cycorp um, they started out in the 70s, I believe, and they, their mission was to create an, a general intelligence. They spent over $100 million trying to do it, and that was their, their, their like tagline, is we're going to create a general intelligence. If you go on their website today, it's like completely shifted to providing net, like specific solutions or whatever. Uh, basically, they, they, backed up, they backed off, because, but they spent a lot of money, so they want, want to get something out of it. Um, but yeah, this no matter how much we increase specific intelligence, it doesn't seem to map onto general intelligence even a little bit. Which calls into question um, a lot of things, but really it seems as if there's, an, there's something that's needed before any kind of general intelligence can be demonstrated. And that thing that's needed is understanding which requires consciousness or in a theistic framework it requires the power of the soul. Yeah. Let's, let's peel that, peel that back just a little bit because I know that's the topic of your dissertation. This what's required for understanding. So, um, in, in, in the theistic framework, in the classical Christian tradition, um, how does the soul actually enable understanding? And then how does that inform what we would, what we might theorize about why a computer never can have that? 
and I'll maybe like as just food for thought or maybe fodder for discussion for you to use as a jumping off point. It seems that there's a, a pretty um, pervasive idea out there now that adheres to what we might call a computational theory of intelligence, that our brains are nothing more than um, imme- immense, very advanced calculators. So, cal- so, so, so advanced that they, they might even exceed that of a quantum computer um, in just sheer complexity, but still just a computer nonetheless. So if we can eventually replicate that, and it might take you know, well, us well into the quantum age of computing to do that, but if we can do that, then we can finally get to a point where we can create an artificial general intelligence. That's the computational theory, uh, theory of mind, we might say. Um, That's right. it seems like, it seems like what you're suggesting is, you know, something different. So how do those things, you know, compare contrast and, and what is our basis for, for holding to something other than a computational theory of mind? Yeah. And you, you said it well, um, computational theory of mind is in fact, um, the theory of mind that finds a lot of purchase in the philosophy of cognitive science as opposed to philosophy of mind, um, because philosophy of cognitive science is kind of this, this new up and coming field that uh, grew up at the same in the same spirit and motivated by philosophy of AI, believe it or not. Um, but yeah, the idea that the mind, the human mind, is re- is reducible to the physical correlates, the consciousness and understanding, is what the computational theory of mind presupposes. So basically, the human mind is in some way, shape, or form equivalent to the human brain, mm. and that's what what it's. So if we can make the mechanisms of a computer complex enough, then we can create a mind, because the assumption is that our minds is a comp- is just a complex machine, um, and that's where the theist. Or the theist, or really any classical thinker of many different stripes, can say, "Well, no. Uh, Physicalism—the idea that the only things which exist are physical objects—is um, not true. There are other, there are immaterial entities that have a real existence, and not just a, a, a mentalistic, made-up existence. Um, and the mind or the soul would be an immaterial existence." that you can't create with a computer. And that, that's where we would sort of respond uh, with. That's how we, uh, the theist or the classical thinker uh, would respond. I had not quite thought of it in this way before you explained it that way. Uh, I had not thought of what I was about to say or what I am about to say until you explained it. So thanks for that explanation. When you said... Um, the computational theory of mind is really based on the idea that the mind equals the brain. And its, its counterpoint would say, no, there's actually more to the mind. There's more to this thing that we call the mind than simply the physical brain, because we're not strictly materialists. It occurred to me that this is probably why the materialists among us place such a premium on figuring out AGI, because AGI, um, is almost a, it, it doesn't necessarily disprove the existence of a soul, but if AGI is not possible, then that would prove the existence of something yeah. beyond the imminent material domain. And that's probably yeah. a terrifying idea for someone who holds to a strictly materialist perspective, right? Because if it's true that we figure out, oh, we actually can't make this AGI thing happen, there's something animating 
the the material of our brains and our bodies and our in our being that is required to make AGI happen that we can't simply build in a lab. That's that's a pretty scary thought to someone who says, no, the materialist universe is all that there is and all that there ever will be. And yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, physicalism for the secular atheist is what we would say the only game in town. It's the only game in town. There cannot be another option with without departing your atheism. And so if you're going to be an atheist, you have to commit to physicalism. And if you commit to physicalism, you have to say that whatever thing we call the mind, it has to be reducible to physical reality. And therefore, it's at least logically possible to create a computer that has the same sophistication such that it has a mind. Um, and therefore, uh, or not therefore, but also uh, motivated by the, the belief that the mind is just a complex machine. Now, one one way they will try to respond as a theist, okay, is what's called non-reductive physicalism or emergent consciousness, where um, even though the even though our our minds um, bottom out in being our brains in some form. It's that our brains being so complex sort of give rise to consciousness, but it's still based on nothing other than physical objects, right? Um, and so it, that might find some purchase with some either atheists and possibly even uh, theists. But the problem with the, not, the, the non-reductive physicalist view of the mind is that it's saying that the physical brain gives rise to the mind, but what we also know is true of the mind is that the mind can affect the brain or the body, which is called downward causation. And if the mind is an emergent reality from the physical brain, you can't really have it. You, the downward causation just doesn't, it doesn't work. So, that's an argument, a starting point of an argument um, to kind of to uh, respond to the idea that um, even if the mind is a brain, um, fundamentally, it's an emergent reality that relies on nothing other than the brain. The theist, I think, is still committed to saying that the mind is, it truly is more than the brain. Can you talk about uh, maybe a concrete example of that downward causation. Cause what, I, what I think I'm hearing, I think I'm understanding you. I think I'm tracking it. And it reminds me of, of, um, you know, how like, for example, Aristotle's, um, first mover argument is an argument for, um, a God who is immutable because God as a first mover cannot change himself. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that's what you're getting at, but can you, can you talk about a concrete example of downward causation just so I can kind of, uh, understand this a bit better? Yeah. Um, so, I'm trying to draw upon the reading that I've done on this topic specifically, but I, I do know that it's what, what we're trying to say is basically that if the brain gives, you know, if the brain gives rise to the mind, but then we're saying the mind also affects the body. Okay. That just doesn't quite work. Right, like it's because it's because then it's its own cause essentially, and the yeah, it's the brain causes the mind, and then the mind causes effects in the brain and the body. 
Right. That's that's kind of the problem that the emergent physical or the non-reductive physicalists have on their hands. Yeah. Um, and, they, and they haven't solved it, I guess. Yes, that makes sense. Um, it also makes me think uh, we I think we discussed this maybe a little bit previously, but it, it is remarkable to me how much of how much of the uh, these sort of advanced arguments or um, uh, hypotheses about artificial intelligence, about consciousness, about theory of mind, end up having interesting intersections with theism. So yes. for example, for example, uh, in what we just talked about, there is there is this emergent theory of consciousness, right? That says like, okay, true, we can't find the cause of the mind in matter specifically, but we can theorize that it sort of arises spontaneously from a system so complex that it, yeah. it just emerges. Um, that is is the same kind of um, the same kind of uh, adherence to uh, extra material causes, if we can call it that, um, or 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 I guess uh, unobservable causes would be a, would be a better way of describing it because it's not strictly extra material. So there's the same reliance on sort of unobservable causes that atheists lambast Christians for constantly. And so <laughs> there's still this like there's still this like adherence to what is fundamentally, I guess, an unknowable, unobservable hypothesis, right? That can, if they're right, can never be actually materially validated. And yeah, because, because, and, and I'll, I'll, I gotta say this because they're saying that consciousness emerges from the physical substrate, but they're also as physicalists saying that immaterial objects don't have real existence. So right. the mind just becomes this thing that kind of exists, but doesn't really, I mean, it, yes. it just doesn't, it doesn't, it can't square with, with true physicalism. Yeah. So in that sense, I think there is a sort of like extra, there's this extra material hypothesis that they end up having to sort of pin their hopes to, which, right. which then has something in common with theism. Right. And well, then, then why be a physicalist? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And then my favorite example that I know we've at least at least touched on is this uh, the simulation hypothesis. This idea that we're living in this in this big simulation that we're all just sort of um, uh, in a petri dish. Some super intelligence has created us all. We all reside in the mind of the super intelligence, and everything that you and I perceive as real is real insofar as as it is in the mind of the super intelligence. But at the end, that's what we are, and that's who we are. Um, that is a very like edgy way. Of basically characterizing the position of classical theism, <laughs> you know, or like a, a, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. not saying that we are just like experiments in a petri dish, but uh, right. at the end of the day, yeah, a, a version of classical theism holds that we are all thoughts in the mind of God. That reality, as it is, exists all within the mind of God because He is the first cause, He is the first mover, He is the uh, the non contingent, non contingency, um, and He is, of course, by definition, according to all the metaphysical classical theistic arguments, He is the super intelligence that gives rise to everything else. And, and like you said in your, in your, in what you sent me, you were commenting on how they haven't really wrestled with that connection. They yeah. pretend that it might not even exist. Um, but all, all the logoi existing in the mind of the logos. Yes. Okay. That's classical theism. Um, the idea that ideations exist in the mind of God. That's Thomas Aquinas. Yep. Um, the logoi thing is Maximus and others. This is like old news to us, right? Exactly. Uh, to our um, yes. So it's not, but the, the thing is, though, it's not that the physical reality doesn't have, it's not that it's not real. 
It's just that there's a super reality that sustains it. Right. And the ultimate super reality is the mind of God or just the person yes. of God. That's exactly right. Yep. Um, so I, I just, I think it's fascinating. These, these, like you said, they map onto, they map onto each other, at least their newer arguments map onto the older arguments and yet yeah. somehow, you know, we're the ones who, uh, who get criticized and called <laughs> some, somehow anti-science or, uh, anti-epistemological. And the same thing, uh, is, can be uh, the same point can be made even more forcefully in the trans, uh, humanism movement, which is, we could really do a whole podcast on that because the promises that they're delivering. Let's do it. We, 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 and a little preview to that perhaps is the promises that the transhumanist movement are delivering is essentially what Christianity has been saying all along. But the key thing to remember is that the way they're supposedly going to bring this about is very anti-Christian. And so it's, it's something that we absolutely have to keep our eyes out on. And the AI phenomenon intersects with transhumanism to a very great degree uh i'm so glad that you mentioned that yeah we should do we should definitely do a podcast on transhumanism i think this is uh another you know equally important um topic as uh as artificial intelligence that we're talking about right now and there are a lot of points of intersection and overlap um on those as well but yeah it occurs to me um so two things and we can we can sort of take this go down this theological um road here in the time that we have remaining uh, which is not much because uh, I uh, unfortunately chatted chatted too long before we started recording. But um, you're exactly right. The transhumanism stuff bears a lot of uh, or or has a lot of things in common. I'm thinking of I think it's Athanasius who said it could have been Augustine. But I think it's Athanasius. He said the Son of Man, the Son of God, became man so that we might become gods. Um, I think and, that was Athanasius. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, whose icon is hanging up in your office, I believe. Um, yes. And so Athanasius said this and, uh, he's talking about the doctrine of divinization, which is not as, not as discussed in the Western church as it is in the East, but yes, that is in fact our destiny as Christians to become, to become God, to be divinized and to be totally united with God. Um, I also am thinking of, however, the promise of the serpent in Genesis chapter three, uh, in which he says, ye shall be as gods. Uh, and so that is actually the cause of the downfall of humanity, this promise to be gods. Um, and so it's pride that goeth before the fall and humans want to be as gods, they fall. But our redemption, our redemption actually comes in this most surprising form in, in which the son of God becomes incarnate, becomes a man, in order that we might in fact become God. Uh, become divinized with God, and so uh, I think it, I think you're absolutely right that that transhumanism, like Christianity, is the first transhumanism. You know, well, the uh, I forget which where I read this, but the first time transhuman or trans man was used was in a religious context. In fact, interesting. I I read that it was Dante. That sounds Dante that, plausible. It, it was Dante that used. Uh, basically, it was a shorthand for transfigured man. It was transhuman. Yes. Okay. Um, and so, wow. yeah. So basically, what you're knocking the door you're knocking on, um, it, it opens to a very significant field, and it man. The thing is, it manifests in very interesting ways. 
because the lie of the serpent, but the promise of God. Yes. Um, those two, those two things, how they play out with the development of theology alongside the development of the transhumanist ideology, and the way they actually look on paper, and the way they manifest in our in our world, is it's arresting. It, it really is. It's arresting. Um, and so, but Zach, I mean, you you went right down to the heart of it. It really is the lie of the serpent. It really because the serpent wasn't like he. He lied, but he also was telling the truth. Like he was telling them what's going to happen. They will get knowledge. Yes. But they were going about it the wrong way. Yes. Which results in death. Right. So he lied about that part. And not just he, physical death, but more importantly, the, the Greek bios, right? Not just the physical death, but the yeah. zoe, the supernatural life. It's, it's both losses of life. Yeah. One immediate, the supernatural life is lost immediately. The physical life is lost later. Right. And so, uh, you know, the, the lie of the serpent is the promise to the things that God has promised us, but to acquire them in anti-Christian ways. That could be that can you can conceive of the lie of the serpent in those in that way. So it's definitely a topic worth talk, talking about. Um, before when you had me on just to talk last week or two weeks ago, uh, we had mentioned. The importance for Christians to, as much as we can, get ahead of the so-called AI revolution. Because although I don't think artificial general intelligence is a threat anytime soon, I do think that a narrow AI can still be exceptionally powerful and, in the wrong hands, very dangerous. Um, so, and dangerous, yeah. There's okay. The AI is going to make our power grid go nuts or we're going to live in a panopticon surveillance state. Those are real concerns, but then there's the kind of the, the, the Huxleyan danger, uh, like you talk about and what you said earlier, um, that we're all going to be caught up in a world of our own distractions, and it's going to be a fantasy of our own making based on AI and virtual reality, and we're going to stop paying attention to what matters, and we're basically going to lose our souls in the process manner of speaking um so how do christians get ahead of this and carve out an ai sphere that is redeeming and glorifying the lord can it be done is the first question and to what extent would be the second but then the, the more important question after that is how do we actually do it yes you know i think those are questions we'll have to save for another day because i do unfortunately have to run alex but I think this is a really good discussion just to do a, a, a general overview of AI. And we talked about transhumanism a little bit and just touch on some of the sort of philosophical presuppositions that, get, that go into this. Um, we didn't talk too much about the threats of narrow AI. You just mentioned a couple of them at the very end there. But I think next time you come on, I'd love to have you on again very soon for a part two. We should talk about the actual real threats, the very real threats from narrow AI, what that could look like in the future. Yeah. Um, and you, you touched on some of them, right? You know, surveillance state. Um, uh, disrupting our daily life in really uh, profound ways that could affect human life, like power grid uh, modulation. Um, you know, I think uh, there's definitely a, a world very soon where we um, have narrow AI carry out some war fighting functions. You know, uh, yeah, we could we could see a world in which narrow AI launches nuclear weapons, for example. So there are very real existential risks at that level. And then, as you mentioned, there are kind of this, the the cultural societal ones in which AI 
uh, could just degrade what it means to be human and, and lead us further and further away from human flourishing on a daily basis. Um, you mentioned something that I wrote, uh, Alex, if people do want to read some of my kind of preliminary thoughts about this, uh, I have a, a piece that I wrote on my Substack um, that Alex has provided some helpful, helpful comments on a first draft on. Um, it'll be published by the time this podcast goes live. So you can just click in the show notes to go that or just go to um, creedle.substack.com to see that. And we'll use those ideas kind of as a launching point, I think, for the next discussion. But as you just pointed out, Alex, the real question is, what are the risks? And then how can we get ahead of those risks? More fundamentally, can is there a Christian way to do AI? I think the way you phrased it in an email to me was, can we baptize AI? And you don't mean like, is this a soul that actually... Yeah. you know, should be baptized with the Trinitarian formula, but rather, is there a way of, um, of making it Christian, of, of doing it in a Christian way? Or is the whole project just sort of fundamentally misguided and full of ego and vainglory and following the lie of the serpent in Genesis 3? That's a super good question that I think we definitely need to answer. Um, and it's probably not a super clear-cut answer either. Uh, I think we're going to have to draw some really fine distinctions and, um, and pontificate a little bit, but I'm really excited about that discussion. We'll have to do that for next time. And I'm great, very grateful to you for coming on out. So thanks so much for joining the show. Yeah, Zach, thanks. It's uh, my first podcast. So, um, you know, it's been fun and I really appreciate the discussion. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll be in touch about um, scheduling part two, because I think this will be, this will be uh, pretty desired after this uh, rather, um, rather big tease of a part two <laughs> that we just did at the end here. I mean, I, th- I feel like we just left so much meat on the bone, you know, and I feel like we could probably talk about this for 10 hours and still leave a lot of meat on the bone. So we'll do it. We'll get a part two scheduled. We'll get it uh, recorded and get it out to you, dear listeners. Listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. Um, if you have a question for Alex and you want to uh, want me to pass it on to him, I'm happy to do so. Just email me, Zach at creedlepodcast.com. And thanks for listening. Until next time. God bless you.